Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 21, 2 Kings chapter 21. Hopefully you remember last week's study in chapter 20 when Hezekiah got the word from the Lord from, from Isaiah. God told Isaiah to go tell Hezekiah to set your house in order because you're going to die and not live. And so Hezekiah prayed for God to heal him. And God gave him 15 more years of life. But during that time, he gave birth to a son named Manasseh. If Hezekiah would have died at the time God announced that he was going to die, Judah's history might have been quite different. There's one thing we know for sure, and that, and that is Manasseh would have never been born. This story gives us a pretty good basis for the permissive will of God versus the perfect will of God. Do you want God's perfect will in your life, which is the best? Or do you want his permissive will, which is second best? Can we insist that God do something and then it ends up not being so good for us? The answer is yes. Can I insist that God do something that I want? And then God in his love and patience, in a way, gives into my insistence. Where, where I'm pushing to overrule over, uh, his will for my life, is that really a smart thing to do? Lord, this is what I want. When we should be wanting, Lord, what you want. Your will be done, not mine. Now this can get into, this, this can get into the fuzzy area of God's permissive will and... and God gives into what I want, but it's not his perfect will for me. And today there are a lot of people who are living in God's permissive will, which is really second best. Not his perfect will, his best. In other words, they're living way below God's uh, best for them. And, And a lot of times there are very unpleasant results when you do. Because when I don't submit to God's will, I insist I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to do it this way. And God, please, go with me. Bless what I want to do. And I think that it's possible, based on Scripture, as we'll see in a minute, that He'll let you have your will. But there may be a cost. And again, we have a great example of that in Numbers chapter 22. And again, if you're familiar with the story, remember Balak, the king of Moab, he hires Balaam to come right away and, and curse the people for him, that is, the Israelites. Because King Balak said, oh, there's too many of them. They're too mighty for me. And King Balak was afraid that they might be able to defeat them and drive them out of their land. Because, you see, whoever you bless Balaam is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. But God said to Balaam, Balaam, you shall not go with them and you shall not curse the people because they are blessed. So convinced by the warning from the Lord, Balaam tells Balak's messengers, hey, I can't go back with you. I can't curse the people. God's forbidden me to, to go. But Balak wouldn't take no for an answer. So King Balak sent more distinguished messengers to try to talk Balaam into cursing the people, to ask him again and make him an offer that he couldn't refuse. So he was promised. Balaam was promised by King Balak's second set of representatives. He, he was promised a nice honorarium. But Balaam said no again. 
And Balaam said, no matter how much silver and gold you offer me, it's, it's not going to be enough. It would never be enough to persuade me to try and do the impossible, which is disobey uh, uh, the purposes of Yahweh, Israel's God. But Balaam said, you know what? I'll ask him one more time. You see, that, that honorarium began to look good to him. So he said, I'll ask God one more time. This time, the Lord gave Balaam the okay, but not to curse his people just to go to Moab so that God might be made, made known uh, through Balaam to the people. You know, we can, I think we can insist on our way and, it, like I said, get into this fuzzy area of the permissive will of God rather than the perfect will of God and then suffer for it. Or, in Hezekiah's case, it was the nation that suffered for it. Because Manasseh, this terribly evil king, was born three years after God extended Hezekiah's life. Of all the wicked kings of Judah, Manasseh was the most wicked of them all. Manasseh was the 14th king of Judah, and he reigned longer than anybody. He he reigned for 55 years longer than any other Israelite king, and and, and had the not-so-honorable distinction of being Judah's most wicked king. He came to the throne when he was 12 years old and probably co-reigned alongside his father for 10 years. His father's godly influence, Hezekiah's godly influence, seems to have only affected Manasseh in a negative way. And Manasseh turned back to the ways of his evil grandfather, Ahaz. He committed idolatry. Manasseh restored everything his father, Hezekiah, had abolished earlier. Manasseh built altars to Baal. He set up an image of Asherah in the temple. He worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he recognized the Ammonite god Molech and even sacrificed his son to him. And he approved of divination, and he killed all who protested his evil actions. It's possible that he even killed the prophet Isaiah. Rabbinical tradition says that Manasseh was the one who gave the command for Isaiah to be cut in two, sawn in two. Scripture sums up Manasseh's reign by saying, in in verse 9 here, he seduced them, that is Judah, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Then Manasseh was temporarily deported to Babylon where he humbled himself before God in repentance. You can see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verses 11 through 13. He did repent. After Manasseh returned to Jerusalem, he tried to undo all the horrible things that he had done. But his changes were quickly reversed after he died by his wicked son, Ammon. So let's begin now with verses 1 through 9 in chapter 21 of 2 Kings. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil, notice, in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire, practice soothsaying, use witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did, did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved uh, image of Asherah that he made in the house of, the, of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, 
in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers. Only if, notice the condition, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded. But they paid no attention and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Jump down to verse 16. And it says there, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, uh, to another besides his sin by which he made in, in, Judah, in Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So, so Manasseh learned to do evil very early in life. He, it seems like he was bent on doing. He had this, this, this position to do evil. Now, we don't know why he had this liking for evil. He became uh, king at 12 years old. He was just a boy. Maybe he was influenced by his wicked attendants, those who took care of him. He had a good father in Hezekiah, and he most likely had a good mother. Typically, you know, the children of a good parents turn out well. And then the child of the wicked, they turn out badly. But again, there are always exceptions on both sides. Some kids from their childhood just seem to be born with a strong will to do evil. And all it needs is for a chance to them to break out into different kinds of evil. The environment of Manasseh, his environment was evil. But this, again, is not an excuse, nor does it explain, you know, everything that one is, you know, like turns to evil. We see Joseph, we see Samuel, we see Daniel and his friends. All their, their environment was evil. Jesus grew up in an evil environment, but they weren't touched by it. So we can't use it as an excuse. Oh, well, you know, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a bad environment and I had bad role models. And th- that might be an influence, but it's not a command. All right? It's not an excuse. It was an advantage for, for Manasseh to lose his father's guidance when he was so young. And then given to him the responsibilities of a king at 12 years old. Hezekiah's court had never supported Hezekiah's changes. And they were probably just waiting for the chance to get a young king like Manasseh that they could influence to change things back to the way they were. Not only that, throughout the country, Hezekiah's changes were mostly outward. And people were tired of the restraints and the restrictions of the law that the law imposed. The way of the world and fashion seemed to influence them more. You see, the moment the fleshly spirit got control... And the favor of the king, it was sure to win over him. The true followers of Jehovah decreased to become a minority. Manasseh's evil, was his idolatry was extreme. The things that Manasseh did showed how far he went to undo his father's work. And it seems like his, his goal was to totally wipe out the worship of Jehovah God and again reestablish the worship of false gods. It, we read in verse 3 that he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had turned, uh, torn down earlier. The ones his father destroyed. When he tried to reestablish conformity with God's law, not accomplished by any king before Hezekiah. Manasseh now is reversing the work of his father and he rebuilds the shrines that his father tore down. And then the consolidation of worship in Jerusalem, man, that might have just just been too inconvenient and and possibly 
the many carnal priests added to the disapproval. Manasseh may have said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the old practice. I'm going to make religion. I'm going to make it more free. I'm going to make it more popular. I'm going to make it more enjoyable. And he had most of the people and officials on his side. It's a sad thing to see a nation going backward after reaching a high point of accomplishment. And when, as I was studying this, I see the United States of America here. Again, it's a sad thing to see a nation going backward after reaching a high point of accomplishment to see an individual building again the things that he destroyed. You know, we see his introduction of idolatries. It was extensive. Even foreign idolatries. Manasseh exceeded even Ahaz's passion in introducing idolatries of every kind from, from foreign nations. Baal and Astarte worship was introduced after the example of Ahab, and the Asherah symbol was again seen in public view in Jerusalem. Ahab's taste for new altars was, was exceeded way more by Manasseh. There was also introduced, in a greater way than ever before, the worship of the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which are all the gods of Assyria. Jeremiah asked in chapter 2.11 of Jeremiah, Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But Judah had changed her god for stupid idols which can only lead to the downfall of a nation. The strongest bond of a nation is religion. And when a nation gives up its traditional faith, as we see the United States slowly moving away from that traditional faith based on the, on the godly forefathers that built this nation, that set up the Constitution, it becomes just a place of confusion, of strange religious ideas. And we see that happening now. The acceptance and the approval of different religions coming in, trying to mix and make one, one big happy family. It sure be for, for long that, that a nation that does that falls to pieces. When, when God invited the foreigners into, to, to, into Israel and to, to join them, He said, we will follow one standard. And that was God's standard. They weren't allowed to bring in their gods and their, and their, and their, their rituals. They said, if you want to follow God, you want to follow Jehovah, you, you're going to follow His standards. And so, again, it's sure that before long, That nation will fall to pieces. Again, this was the condition of the Roman Empire before it fell. And we see the United States of America heading in that direction. He had the worst idolatries, Manasseh did. And it wasn't just foreign idolatries that Manasseh introduced, but the most vile and the most cruel of these idolatries. Especially, liberty was given to the people to practice the worst and vilest riches of Astarte worship and and doing it In the house of the Lord, verse 4 and 5 says. Doing it in God's house. The horrid worship of Molech with its human sacrifices was brought back. And Manasseh himself approved of it by giving at least one of his sons to the fire, according to verse 6 here. These were the abominations that God uh, that, that, that caused God to cast out the original inhabitants of the land. And now these things are being reinduced back into the land full force. Then there were the accompanying superstitions of idolatry. Idolatry here, like anywhere else, brought in all its other dangerous superstitions. Those who forsake God have always been prone to fall for the most childish delusions and impostures. 
For example, in verse 3, the worship of the heavenly hosts. Again, that means all the gods of Assyria. That brought the practice of astrology. Wanting to communicate with the unseen world led to sorcery, divination, consulting with mediums and psychics. Verse 6 tells us that. Bragging about this false freedom that they had. The mind fell into a hopeless slavery to demonism, which we see the development of spiritualism in our own day to day. In other words, the movers and the shakers of this reintroduction of idolatry would no doubt give the credit to and take the credit for the enlightened minds and the freedom from the narrow ideas in which the people of Judah up till then had been bound. They were bringing in a new age of toleration. A new culture with broader views and attitudes. Doesn't that sound like the United States today? It, re, it was resulting in, a, in their minds, it was resulting in a, in a great improvement in the state of the nation. When in reality, they were loosening all religious and social ties and they were opening the door to corruption, making religion more free, more popular, and more enjoyable. Manasseh desecrated the temple of God. Manasseh wasn't just happy bringing new idolatries into style. He carefully went to work to put an end to the worship and the honor of Jehovah God and replace Jehovah God with foreign gods. Manasseh set up his many altars in the house of the Lord. And in particular, he specifically erected altars for the worship of the host of heaven that is all the gods of Assyria in the two courts of the temple, according to verse 5. Then, to top it all off, He brings into the very house of Jehovah God itself an image of the Asherah that he had made with all of the vile associations that come along with it. You see, Manasseh couldn't have have insulted Jehovah anymore. In the very place where Jehovah said in verse 7, In Jerusalem I will put my name there. In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. What he does there in the very dwelling place of the holy God, among men, he puts this impure symbol. The Asherah image in the temple was the ultimate symbol of the whole apostasy of the people. It was the official sign that they broke their covenant with God or on fidelity uh, which depended, you know, in, in possessing the land. Their loyalty to God is what, what was, they were dependent upon in, in possessing the land. The Asher image refers to a wooden pole or cult pillar that stood at Canaanite places of worship. It might have been the trunk of a tree with the branches chopped off and associated with the worship of the goddess Asherah. We also read that, that Manasseh shed innocent blood. This was the final and last charge against Manasseh in verse 16. It says, He shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. The words here speak of a deliberate and organized persecution of God's people, God's servants. This is the persecution they say, where, like I said, Isaiah died. It's the shedding of innocent blood where we're told that the Lord would not pardon him. Because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We see from this example that the spirit of false toleration, of false culture, of the liberal view that confuses truth and error, it leads to intolerance and hatred of God. That's really what lies underneath of all of it. Even though he repented, repented late in his life. In Second Chronicles 33, 11 through 17, you can read of his repentance. 
What a great end to this story. Now, you'd never expect it. But Manasseh, late in his life, repented, and he did receive the mercy of God. Now, this is neat because what, what, what's neat about it is Manasseh's repentance teaches us something really important. Never think somebody that you know is so bad they could never be saved. Because how many times go, oh man, it would be a miracle of that. Yeah, it's a miracle of anybody saved. The seeds that were planted early in life may have blossomed many days later in Manasseh's life. No doubt it was the godly instruction that he got as a child from his father that brought Manasseh back to Jehovah God. You see, there's hope for the worst of sinners. Man, if Manasseh received mercy, anybody can. He got saved near the end of his life. So again, don't lose hope for anybody. God brings men to himself by affliction. Through, our, through, through trials and tribulations. That's what happened with Manasseh. While Manasseh was a prisoner in Babylon, taken there by the captains of the kings of Syria, Manasseh found the Lord. They put a hook in his nose and they tied him up in chains. Now, repentance doesn't always move the consequences of sin. And, and it's hard for people. To, oh, I, get, I said I was sorry. I, I, I asked the Lord for forgiveness and, and I'm still suffering. Well, God promised to forgive you of your sins. He didn't promise to take away the consequences of your sin. It's important that we understand that because a lot of people get mad at God. Well, I, I, I repented, but yet I'm still suffering the pain. Well, yeah. Again, he doesn't promise to take away the consequences. The wickedness of Manasseh's long reign had its effects even though he repented. His conversion came too late to undo what he had done. The blood that he shed, the Lord wasn't going to pardon that. The nation was blamed as well as Manasseh, and even though he repented, the people didn't repent. You see, it's an awful thought that even though we repent, it doesn't wipe out the effects of the things that we've said and the things that we've done while sin had a hold of our lives. Nor can the effects of sin on our own ever be completely taken back. You know, we, we, many have led lives that have, you know, you know, wreaked havoc on their health and their character and their usefulness. And again, some of the effects that we have, you know, we've received as a result of our sin, it can never be completely undone. Now let's look at verse 10 through 18. And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these these abominations, that is, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing notice such a calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. Notice God says, I'm bringing this calamity and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because, notice, they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sins by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sins that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. In all that Manasseh did, he not only sinned himself, but he seduced others to sin. You see, people in high positions, they have a lot of influence, good or bad. They have this kind of influence. They're natural leaders. They're natural social leaders. And their example can be used for good or evil. But the prophets, though as it proved at the risk of their own lives, they didn't fail to warn him. Even though the prophets risked their lives, they they didn't fail to warn Manasseh. And it was no doubt that their faithful rebukes and the terrible things that they predicted would happen is what brought down upon him the king's wrath and and led to the great persecution. Manasseh, it says in verse 11, was more wicked than the Amorites. And the the things that he did may have been the same. But he was guiltier, and here's why. Because of the light that Manasseh had because of his upbringing, because of the light of his father, who was a godly man. You see, if he hadn't been brought up in an environment like that, and his, God, and his father wasn't godly and, 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 and did the things that he did, you know, it would be understandable why he wouldn't be as guilty. But you see, his light was brighter than those Amorites. The Amorites had the light of creation. They, all they had was to look around and see creation. And, and Paul, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, that was enough to make them inexcusable. But Manasseh had the light of revelation. He was king of a nation that God had made, that, that, that God made fully known the truth of his being and his character and his attributes. God gave them the law. God gave them statutes like no other nation. And, that, and, and, that, and they enjoyed the holy ministry of the holy prophets. Manasseh also had the advantage of a, do, a devoted father's example and his training. And for somebody like Manasseh to go back to the sins of the Amorites, that was a terrible offense to God. So it made his wickedness worse than the Amorites. Because he knew better. You see, we're going to be judged by the amount of light that we possess. That is the light of the Word of God. And you see, and if our light is not improved, it will be more tolerable for heathen nations than for us. Manasseh was guilty of apostasy. They weren't. See, Manasseh was guilty of apostasy. The Amorites weren't. If the Amorites did these abominations, and if they had served these idols, they could at least say that they'd never lived under any other system. God had allowed them to walk in their own way. But Manasseh, on the other hand, he was guilty of a direct act of apostasy. You see, Manasseh turned away from uh, from the past accomplishments of his father. Manasseh was disobeying a covenant made at Sinai and that a covenant that was renewed over and over and over again with God's people. You see, it's a different thing for a heathen to commit the vile acts that he's been raised in and for a Christian to reject Christian, tra- Christian training and do the same things. The corruption of the best is the worst 
There's another principle that explains why Manasseh's abominations are considered worse than the Amorites. A nation that has been once enlightened can't sin as the partially ignorant heathen does. It develops worse and more dangerous evils. It's like an animal. It can't sin in the same way as a man or a child in the same way as an adult. So a nation enlightened by revelation can no longer sin like a nation that doesn't have this light. The severity of Jerusalem's punishment was hard. But the grounds for the punishment are twofold. We read in verse 11 that Manasseh's sins are described. And again, this is the, the, the reason for the punishment, the grounds for the punishment. Verse 11 says, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations. The people shared in the sins of their king. He also made Judah sin with his idols. You see, king and people, the leader and the people must suffer together. There's a shared responsibility that involves a group of people in common guilt, whether the sin starts from the head or the members. It involves their, the, 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 the judgment comes, the, the reason for the judgment comes also because of their involved past transgressions. Look at verse 15. God says, because they have done evil in my sight, notice, since the day of their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. That involvement would have been cut off by timely repentance. But by failing to repent, the guilt continues to go on. The guilt continues to be handed down. This is another part of corporate responsibility. The life of the nation is continuous and one generation has to accept its responsibilities from another. We, say, we see the same principle, for example, in the handing down of the nation's doubt. Jesus' views, Jesus views the, na- the Jewish nation of his day as accountable for all the righteous blood that had been shed from Abel's day on down. The nature of the punishment would be surprising. God was going to just blow them away. Look at verse 12. God says, I'm bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. It means they will turn red. They will tremble. God's vengeance on Jerusalem would be so awful, it would be a shock to them. And it would amaze even those that were familiar with such shocking scenes. God says, hey, just hearing about what I'm going to do is going to make your ears sting. And what God does is going to be measured. His judgment is going to be measured. Notice verse 13. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. The idea here is that God would hold Judah strictly accountable for their sin, just like he'd already done with Samaria. Now, the measuring line and plummet are introduced for purpose of precision. In other words, God was going to measure exactly the transgression of the people. It would note precisely the level of their deviation from righteousness. And to this measured guilt, the punishment would be proportioned. In other words, he's going to look at all that they had done, and based on all that they had done, that's how he was going to measure the punishment. It, would be, it was going to be equal to what they had done. And the reason for measurement was that no mercy, there was going to be no mercy mixed with judgment anymore. No judgment, pure punishment, pure judgment. The nation was going to bear the full brunt, the full effect of its sin. It is a terrible thing 
when God marks our iniquity. Because you see, then the sinner's situation is hopeless. God's judgment was going to be complete. Look at verse 13. He says, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Look at verse 14. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance. This picture of cleaning a dish till it's as clean as wiping can make it is a very clear picture for the total emptying and desolation that was going to overtake Jerusalem. The city wouldn't just be humbled like it had been many times before. But it was going to be totally destroyed and the people were going to be led away by their enemies. The predictions were fulfilled to the letter. Now Manasseh might kill the men who predicted these words. You may be able to kill the messenger, but you're not going to be able to kill the message. Manasseh could not stop the word from coming true. His violence, Manasseh's violence, guaranteed the certainty of their fulfillment. In the disaster that was was to come to Jerusalem, it is proof that there truly is a God that judges in the earth. Psalm 58, 11 tells us that. And we're warned. We're warned of that in case we provoke his wrath to the other most by our unrepentance. For those who don't repent, there's going to be wrath to the uttermost. Then there's Manasseh's death. His reign was over 50 years, 55 years. But it came to an end. And even though the last years of his life were marked by repentance, it left permanent marks of evil on the condition of the people. And we read that Manasseh was buried in his tomb in the Garden of Uzzah. And so was Ammon. Verse 26 was born. Let's close now with verses 19 through 26. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Jotba. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in all the ways that his father had walked, and he served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord, God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Then the servants of Ammon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. Then Josiah, his son, reigned in his place. So now we have the reign of Ammon. In this king we have... A lighter copy, because a little shade lighter than his father. The only things worth mentioning about Ammon during his two short reigns, are two, uh, two, his reign of two short years, is this. His imitation of Manasseh's wickedness. His father, during the greater part of his reign, has sent, set an evil example. But towards his close, like I said, he repented. But notice the effects on his son. Ammon didn't imitate. His son didn't imitate the repentance part of his father, only the sin. He walked in all the ways his father did, apparently setting up idols again like the ones his father, Manasseh, had just removed. And Ammon was the father of a good son. And then Josiah, his replacement, a good king, now after a bad, a bad king. We see this rotation. One after the other. Good king, bad king. Good king, bad king. You know, father, son, father, son. 
This is another of the surprising changes of character that, again, we already talked about. We saw Hezekiah come. He gives birth to a bad king like Manasseh. Then Manasseh gives birth to Josiah. Josiah, I'm sorry, Ammon, a bad king. And then Josiah comes and a good king. And so we see this, this rotation. How Josiah came out of such a home with the character that he had, again, it's, it's a mystery. Unless we give credit to his grandfather's influence after his return from, again, uh, uh, captivity. Another victim of, of court conspiracy, Ammon was. Look at verse 23. Joash and Amaziah, among the kings of Judah, had met their death by conspiracy in Second Kings. And many of the kings of Israel perished, died, they died that way. But no king of Judah died like this until he had first fallen away from God. Ammon had a similar miserable death. His servants conspired against him and they killed him in his own house. The fact that they dared to do so may indicate a tendency to reaction in the public mind against the excesses of idolatry in which the king took part. But the people, they had no intention of letting conspirators take the throne. So they killed the murderers. And they set up Josiah the king. And this again, for a time, led a great reaction for the better. Father, again, we thank you for these lessons that we see before us, God, in your wonderful word. God, we thank you. Lord, for your word does not hide the truth about the wickedness of man, God. That's why we know it was written by you, Lord. Because if the Bible was written by men, we'd read nothing but good stuff about how wonderful man is and all the great things about him. But Lord, you show us what man is really like, God. Lord, help us to understand, God, as Paul said, that there's none that does good. There's none that goes after God, that follows after you. But all have gone astray and turned away. Therefore, Father, how we need to repent. How we need to seek you, Lord. To seek your forgiveness for our sins, God. For we all are all unworthy, Lord. Maybe you're here this evening and, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never received him as your Lord and Savior. Our prayer is always that you would come to know him. That through the studies of God's word. You'll see the examples of men. Who lived ungodly lives and yet. They paid the price. And unless we, we repent. We too will, will pay the price. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship right now. <clears throat> And if the message this evening spoke to your heart and you recognize your need for Christ, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And then when the song's over, we'll pray a simple prayer of faith together.